Welcome to Wildcards. We created this podcast to get under the skin and to listen to incredible people that have gone on to do some pretty special things in their industries that they sit in. We wanted to speak to them about the game-changing moves that they've made, the companies they've created. We want to listen, most importantly, to the mistakes that they've made and how they've learned from them and how they've been able to create some special things within the industries that they sit in. Find out today what makes a wildcard. Welcome to episode six of Wildcards Podcast. Today, I'm super excited to introduce you to my good friend, David Carey. David is not only a really good friend of mine, he's a former competitive swimmer and Olympian. He competed in the Commonwealth Games and Olympic Games several times and is the founder and CEO of Track Record Coaching, where he equips leaders of pre-IPO companies with vital skills needed to thrive in this really tough economic climate. David brings with him a wealth of experience and in the coaching world, I think you'll find this episode extremely insightful well good to sort of have you on board david uh our new guest this month is david curry um i've known david for about two years i think now there are thereabouts um yeah. david and I, um, I think it's about that isn't it yeah that's about right and how do we know each other Seems how longer. do i know a? how do i know a three times <laughs> A three-time Olympian. Um, so we met. At, at, it sounds really romantic, actually, very romantic at a, a business networking <laughs> forum. And this forum uh, is all around. Um, it's sort of like therapy for founders, if you will. And Dave and I sort of hit it off, became quite close friends, um, and ever since sort of hosting po- um, Wildcards as a as a podcast, I've been really keen to get David on board, and thankfully. We've managed to get David in his very busy schedule of jetting all over <laughs> the world, including 10,000 times over to Florence um, over the past year or so. Um, and the timings have just been perfect because I'm sat on the M6 currently uh, <laughs> with 5G signal, which is even better. So, David, welcome to po- welcome to uh, my podcast, Wildcards. Good to have you on board. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, no, it's uh, very cool to be uh, asked. And uh, this is actually the very first podcast I've ever done on this site. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, I the, the weird thing is I host a podcast called What Does It yeah. Take to Win? Um, and I'm very used to kind of being in the very cool state of just asking questions and allowing somebody else to go for it so this is uh the tables have been turned quite enjoy it let's see i love that i didn't actually realize that so you so what it takes to win so what made you sort of i'd love to talk about that just quick let's kick off with that like what made you sort of want to start that well it was kind of the question that we started asking when i started track records uh it was myself and scott gardner he was a performance scientist for british cycling and mm. he then came across to swimming, where I was um, uh, an athlete. Um, and I just totally gravitated toward this guy. He was um, seen as the kind of the, the professor of the sporting world, coming from the British cycling team, who had been unbelievably successful at the 2008 mm. um, Olympic Games. And uh, so he joined our swimming team. And a lot of people um, didn't really kind of and get what he was coming from but i i just totally laughed up and the very first time i met uh <laughs> he, he was uh watching a training session that i was doing 
and I was smashing it at this training session and it was like 10 400s IM. It took about 45 minutes. My heart rate was averaged 182 or something. I mean, it was just off the charts at about 10 seconds rest in between each repeat. Um, And I got to the end of it. And this was supposed to be like an easy aerobic, welcome to the week type session. Got out of the pool and I walked over to him and I was like, so what do you think of that? And he was like, (laughs) yeah, no, really impressive. Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, Lots of effort there. But which part of the Olympic... um, final were you practicing there and i was like what do you mean what do you mean like did you not see how much effort i put in there and he's like well yeah but I, I i don't know how that relates to what it is that you're trying to achieve and it totally through me it took me like two weeks i was like you don't know what you're talking about you don't know what it takes to be an olympic swimmer um but it wasn't until i really kind of the penny dropped and actually he totally transformed the way certainly I thought about training and preparation for Olympic Games. And he actually led a kind of mini revolution within our sport, thinking about rather than thinking about what have you done and how much effort can you put in and how much training can you get done, it's actually mm. thinking about the end in mind. What is it that you're trying to achieve? What would have to be true in order to achieve that result? And so therefore, what can you do today in order to get there? And so the, the whole premise, once I'd retired and, and I teamed up with Scott to, to kick off track record, was around actually what does it take to win and constantly asking that question rather than like, what do you have to do today or like, what's on your to-do oh. list? It's really thinking about what does it take to win? What are the key choices? What are the priorities? And so therefore, what do I have to do today in order to get there? Um and so that kind of led to the to the podcast as well, because ultimately it was a marketing ploy because it was like, who did we want to work with? So therefore, how can we get to them? And so therefore, let's start right. a podcast and, and speak to them directly. So it was almost kind of using our whole philosophy around the win was working with these people. Um, but it's since grown arms and legs. And actually, we've developed a real kind of passion uh, for doing this uh, podcast and had some incredible people uh, along, so leading performers in sport and business. So. Amazing. And was your, David, your mindset pre-thinking like that, what was it before? Was it fundamentally different to what it, the mindset it was that he was bringing? Un, un, yeah, it was unbelievably different if I think about it. Like the difference pre and post in a kind of mm. um, material way. Basically, 35% of what I was doing before 2008, before Scott really started asking those questions and after, 35% of what I was doing was not contributing directly to what I was trying to achieve. So 35% of all that work I was doing was essentially harming the 65% that was actually making a, a contribution. So it was really, I mean, it was a fundamental shift. So really shift change, before yeah. that, it was all about how much effort can you put in? Like how much suffering can you uh, tolerate? Um, you know, how many yards can you kind of squeeze? How much training can you do essentially? And then mm. fingers crossed, all of that training would then translate into a performance. Whereas afterwards, it was much more, today, what I'm about to do is preparing for the first six seconds of my Olympic final. And all of a sudden, like the inspiration 
massively went up. The purpose went up. The the connection between what I was doing today and that kind of moment in London 2012, there was a direct connection. And so actually when I turned up to London, when I was on the starting line of the Olympic final, it was like I'd done it a million times before because I practiced it before. And actually the, the interesting thing was we actually relabeled it from training to practice. So all of a sudden, it just completely changed uh, all these things. Wow. I didn't know that, actually. Even spending a whole week with you in Friend. Florence, you never told me that. But yeah, there <laughs> were plenty of wine and, and, and whatever else. David, I'd like, <laughs> yeah. to, I'd, I'd like to go back um, to sort of paint a bit of a picture to our listeners. Um, can you give a bit of a flavor? I mean, I, I've, I heard a bit of the story, but I'd love to sort of dig a bit more into it. Like how... Um, pre-Olympics, school, like childhood. If we go back there, what was it Was it like for David Curry? How did you get into swimming? And what was the, the catalyst, the thing that made yeah. you want to go into that and train and realize that actually I'm not just, I don't, well, maybe you liked it, but let's dig into it. Did you, did you enjoy and did you actually feel that you were good at it and, and something that you, you wanted to pursue? How did it sort of come about? Yeah, I, I've done a lot of, I guess there was the, the, the story, the, the version that I experienced, and then there's the kind of the post-rationalization story as well. And I guess the, the story that I experienced, um, I'll start with that one. Essentially, I am I, super fortunate that um, I was born in a city that had a ridiculous high ratio of swimming pools to population. And so interesting. I love that. It was just almost in the culture. Yeah, it was almost in the culture that um, Aberdeen had created a crazy number of Olympians and Olympic medalists. Um, and so, actually, my headmaster was an Olympian. And I think I, I, I remember at the time others seeing him as, wow, like he's on this pedestal. He was an Olympian. Yeah. That's quite special. And I, don't think at the time I thought, right, so therefore I want to be an Olympian, but it certainly must have kind of opened the possibility that that is a route that is possible from that position. So, so that, I can, that, that was a little bit of the back, backdrop. Um, and yeah, I just, I mean, it was one of those classic examples of I went to learn to swim at the age of three or four and then went to a club and before I knew it, I was doing morning training at, you know, six and seven years old and, um, uh, by the time I was 11, um, I was pretty much training every night and most mornings uh, before and after school. And it, it didn't seem remarkable. So a lot of my friends at school and uh, surrounding schools were also doing that. I wasn't okay. like, you know, smashing it at like national level. Um, but I was always every single time i just made it into the next level so i just made it into the yeah, top right. squad or i just made it into the district level or i made the scottish youth squad by a hundredth of a second well, and, and of course oh, really? that like being able to go into that um kind of sphere uh, all of a sudden opens up better quality coaching higher level of expectation just a, a, a different no. level of kind of peer group and so therefore it kind of accelerated me each time. And interestingly, it wasn't until I was um, 
I, I was really late actually as a developer. And it wasn't until I was uh, well, Athens 2004, so I was 22 at my really? first Olympics. And it was the first time I actually represented Great Britain, uh, whereas most kids are, you know, 15, 14, 15, 16. That was my, my first experience of that. Um, so I guess that was the environment. And I, I, I always enjoyed it. I did it because my mates did it. It felt like a really safe and happy place to be. Um, and, and the biggest thing, really, I felt like it was fair. Like the input that I put in, the effort, directly resulted in a better outcome. And I just felt fundamentally that was a fair place to be. And I think it was contrasted to I didn't love school at all. And in particular, when I was, really? I think it was six or seven, I had um, a couple of horrible experiences with, me about this. with teachers. Yeah. And I'm sure, yeah. And it, it was just like, oh, horrible experience. It's like standing up in front of class and just being told, you know, you're not good enough, sit down, go on. And just the shame yeah. and embarrassment. And I'm sure it wasn't meant, but I totally basically labeled the classroom as not safe. Um, whereas I okay. found swimming to be like a really kind of um, happy and safe place to be. And But the interesting thing was that kind of sense of not being good enough followed me to the swimming pool. And as much as I enjoyed being there and thought it was safe and felt like the energy in like resulted in a, you know, like a, portion of energy out i've always considered myself just not quite good enough really and so it was this huge motivator but at no point did i go yes this is really cool it was always okay so now i'm at the national level let's get to international okay now i'm at international level let's get to the olympics okay now i'm at olympics now let's get to a medal there was always a feeling of deficit never a feeling of like whoop that's really cool um, and that kind of followed me all the way through, actually, to that kind of moment of 2008, 2009, when Scott came in, when there was more support, there was um, that kind of Olympic cycle up until London. All of a sudden, the sport really did fundamentally shift, became more professional. Um, and I started getting some uh, psychology help around, like, what is holding me back? What could allow me to, to progress and, and that kind of period was, mm. was massively helpful so for me. What I find fascinating the way you view it is like I've only just recently finished this book and it's called Outliers by Mike Malcolm Gladwell. Um yeah. Of how you recognize those well lots of successful people recognize them, but some a lot of people don't acknowledge them because it it sort of downgrades their success somewhat in the you you identified that like first off your head teacher's an, an ex-Olympian so you've already got someone with a that sort of mindset what are the odds of that yeah. happening really for any school child in the whole of the UK let alone where yeah. you are in Aberdeen the other thing is there's the swimming pools you have more swimming pools in that area than yeah. most other most other cities in the whole of uh, Great Britain, which I find fascinating. You recognize that. Yeah. Um, did you, you said that like, you know, school wasn't safe. Did you take out a lot of your um, focus on that entirely and just put it all into the tank of competing, doing your best? I know you said you were always just about there, but you must have been, very good in order to be just about there 
because you're in that top category. That's yeah. what I'm asking you. It's like, did was yeah. that your outlet to prove and show your your worth, or was it sort of yeah? It feels like you're being quite casual with that sort of you know what my friends are doing it. Oh, this is you yeah. know I don't know. I'm just sort of wanting to dig a bit more yeah. into it. I, yeah, I I think I think there's a couple of things. One, I think it was quite a strong part of my identity. So I was known as the swimmer, and that felt pretty good to be kind of recognised for something. And there was a, definitely yeah. an ego play on that one. Um, to the point, actually, it became almost overwhelming. And I remember um, uh, one assembly, I was uh, paraded in front of the whole school, and it's like, David's going to the Scottish Championships. He's representing wow. the school. Um, we all wish him the very best. And I just thought, <laughs> holy. So I remember like being in the race thinking, all these hundreds of school kids are like waiting for this result and I, I swam the race and I totally choked. I came forth. I was miles ahead. I, I, I dived in. I'm like, I came down the second length, just absolutely died of death. Everybody, well, three people passed me. Um, and there's no way I should have been beaten, really. Um, I, I should have been able to, to win that race. And I remember going back to school just so embarrassed, thinking, all these really? people are expecting me to win this medal, and I didn't. And um, uh, I remember kind of walking in, and I kind of went up to my mates, and they were like, oh, how are you doing? How was your weekend? And I was like, oh, bad. And they're like, oh, right, why? I was like, what do you mean, why? Like, I was at the competition. Swimming, like, Scottish showing championships. And they were like, oh, right, cool. How did, yeah, how'd it go? <laughs> and really? it's just like, what? You, like... If my mates didn't care, like clearly oh nobody else God. cared. And that was such yeah. like a helpful thing for me. Like the only person really? that really cares about the outcome of this is me. To the point that I actually went up to my coach and I was like, oh, that was so bad. And she turned around and went, oh, sorry, have you already swum? And it was just like, really? oh, what's, really? going, what's going on here? But it, it was such a helpful lesson to me that actually that stress and pressure did not come from those kids it didn't come from the coach it came from me i was the self-generator of that stress and pressure um and so instantly that that helped me realize that actually you don't need to have that weight of expectation from others i'm the one generating it so therefore Boom. if it's just me then i can completely change the the kind of the level of expectation from that one. was that a check did you take that learning into other competitions, oh, big as it got time. bigger big time. and bigger it, and bigger. Even yeah. as even it got, even yeah. even when it got to the Olympic sort of stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? No, I, 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 almost from that moment on, because I was like, I was literally sick before the race, and it was just, Whoa. I was so full of nerves. Um, and it was almost like that kind of tipping point of either it's going to be like this every single time, or I'm going to be able to figure out a way mm -hmm. through it, and I. Fortunately, and I think it was because of those people not going, Oh, how did it go? Oh no, you were a disaster. <laughs> it was it was very helpful as a as a leveler. And there's mm. no doubt that it helped me. To, to the point that I went to my first Olympics and we had a head coach, a guy called Bill Sweetnam, who absolutely tried to amp up 
the seriousness and the pressure and significance of an Olympic Games, saying things like, any weakness you have are going to be shown up a hundredfold when it comes to the Olympic Games and, you know, you've got to be battle-hard and all this kind of... And this was running through my head as a kind of alternative soundtrack to actually stress and pressure is generated by me, not other people. So how does that equate? And I remember, like, standing at the Olympic Games, I I was in the relay. I was, I think I was third in the relay leg. No, fourth. Fourth in relay leg. And the first summer went in and all like the two weeks building up, I was like, right, when does the stress and pressure come? Like when, when does this kind of big moment happen? And I literally remember watching my teammate coming in and I was standing on the block about to take dive in. And I was like, still not happened. Like this is just an really? ordinary swimming competition. It just happens to be called the Olympics. And I just had this really out of body experience around like, what was he on about? Uh, it's just such a weird, bizarre situation. And I think it was down to that whole idea of, actually, I've done this so many times before. And whether it was yeah. the World Championships, the Commonwealth Games, whatever else, it it, it just was 50 metres, eight lanes, competing against the same people. Um, it just happened to be that more people were watching it. At, and it was... It was very bizarre to me that people find this to be stressful. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, looking around your group of peers that you would have become known, like not just your own peer group, but obviously your competitors as well. Do you think, did you see them behaving the same manners or doing the same rituals or routines? So I can't imagine everyone's um, thinking like that. No, no, I, I think um, it's interesting because I, I, I think because of the journey I had been on, which was I wasn't always the best, and mm. I, I, very rarely did I, for example, win the British Championships prior to um, getting on the Olympic team. I actually wasn't used to that sense of having to defend me being that kind of number one. There wasn't like mm. people are chasing me down. I was always the one chasing others down. And so I, I think being that, I don't really want to use the underdog because I, I just didn't feel like it was, I, I didn't feel like anything, there was nothing mm. to lose there. Like I was so happy to be in that Olympic team. I thought like, that's my dream. That's the box I wanted to take. As soon as I'd done that, I was going to kind of move on with my life and do something else. It turned out I went to another few Olympic Games because I couldn't shake the bug of it. But I think it was, I did see others who had been kind of number one in their age group and number one in their country and, you know, going in top two in the world and almost like it was theirs to lose rather than an opportunity Mm. just to kind of perform. Interesting. Really interesting love that sort of um it's almost in some respect from the stuff i've read and listened to it's those people that have gone through the ranks of earning the grit and the the failures that enable yeah. them to keep on just getting better and better and better and then you know, the overnight yeah. success story actually is 10, 20, 15 years worth of hard work and failures. Um, 
quite often, not that I've seen it a lot, but you hear and listen to sort of these stories of um, these great people we aspire to sort of look up to, sports athletes, mostly sporting people, it, a lot of entrepreneurs as well, where they've been able to turn the tides because they've been in the, the dumps, they've been in the trenches. Actually, not being that number, using raw talent, if you will, as the platform yeah. to elevate themselves has been the thing that has enabled them to be the best that they can do because they've been at the bottom and work them their way up to the top. Talent gets us so far, but I think it's those people that have gone on that level. I think Bill Gates actually talks a bit about it in terms of like, he was yeah. incredible at maths or maths, as they like to say. And, um, yeah, I'm taking the mic out of the American audience now. That's really good, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> and actually, when he went to national level, he was no longer the best. He was the best in his school. He was best to probably for his state, I think. But actually, on the national level, he was no longer this. And that actually really hurt. That hurt his, that hurt his ego. Um, and yeah. it's th- at that point, I think it's called the um, the mindset. I think all American Express employees get this book. And it is, it's around that raw talent is nothing compared to that, yes. that ethic of wanting to learn from failure to then jump yeah. forward if you were to make in progress. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which I it's, it's, it's a really interesting, it is super interesting because um, I think it's growth mindset by Carol Dweck. Yeah. A lot of That's people it. Yes, go sorry. into Yeah, 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 and, yeah exactly. Um, and it's so interesting to see how that, um, is used as a look. This mm. is what you need to be. You're either this or not. And the whole the whole concept of growth mindset is that everybody has the potential to get better, given focus and attention. And it's interesting. It's often given by you know learning development or you know a new CEO comes in and it's like everybody's got to be growth mindset or they're out. And actually, it's used as an outcome or a, a behavior doctrine. You have to be growth mindset or you're not part of our gang. Now, of course, having the elements and the, the constituents of growth mindset, being open to learn new ideas, increases innovation, improves creativity, improves collaboration, generally gets better results, although mm-hmm. the research doesn't necessarily follow, does for kids, not necessarily for organizations. However, I believe, and having coached, I, I don't know how many, certainly in the thousands of uh, senior leaders within organizations now, the consistent thing within high-performing high leaders, the leaders that are you know, leading like major corporations or significant uh, businesses, a lot of entrepreneurs have had the same experience as well that I've had with them. We do this thing called track record so far, so highs and lows of your journey. Um, yes. And every single one, without fail, every single one has had some kind of experience of either capital T or little t trauma within their childhood that has essentially given them an experience of hardship. Now, using my example, it was you know being bullied, whether it was or not, doesn't really matter. I felt like I was the victim mm. of some kind of authority suppression kind of situation that for me was trauma and uh, mm. but i use that moment of i never want to feel that again 
So therefore, I'm going to find somewhere that I can feel safe. And the, so there's a combination of experiencing that real kind of low, being able to kind of basically say, I never want that again. So therefore, I want to avoid that feeling, which creates the kind of the runaway from motivation. And in that moment, having some avenue to then use that energy and channel it. Whether that's through a mentor, a teacher, a sport, mm. a team, whatever it might be. And they've basically in that moment learned that not only do I not want to, and so therefore I'm motivated to avoid that feeling, but I've got a way of channeling that energy into something else. And the consistency is unbelievable. Just in really? terms of, you know, my parents were divorced and so therefore I felt this and I never wanted to feel that again. So therefore I like, and then in that moment, I found this opportunity and, and found that this was the thing that I was really good at. And it, just the consistency of that has been unbelievable, whether it's, you know, grandparents dying, whether it's, you know, siblings um, having major accidents or yeah. um, some kind of real close uh, personal issue that they've had. Um, resulting in that kind of moment, it's it's unbelievable, uncanny in terms of the the consistency of that, and I, I really do believe that that then leads really? people to those kind of traits of you know being able to deal with setbacks, to be able to be resilient, to create that inner confidence in terms of you know what is it that I can do in the situation um, to get me through, because I think the alternative is. Uh, helplessness or frozen or an yeah. inability um, or a kind of victimhood of, well, there's no way I can do that because of this experience. Whereas most of these people have had a different experience. Do you, just on that like topic, have you seen in your experience people like learning from those setbacks and making them motivated and driven and, and having that will to succeed go actually backwards? Or is it always a um, whole momentum feeling and journey? That you just could, you, you just sort of step off. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of things that were mentioning on that one as well. One is the people I'm coaching tend to be the ones that have found a way through. So the, the, the sample group that I'm speaking to are unlikely to have not found a way through that moment. Again, that's my hypothesis. I don't know if that's yeah. true or not. But what I what I have. Um, encountered is people that have not been able to identify that moment and so therefore being um, held back because of it so this could be so we do okay. a, um emerging leaders program for an example and these are you know generally mid-20s to kind of early 30s who are kind of making their way into that um that kind of corporate world have aspirations of being a leader but are are, are in some ways not kind of quite there yet and anxious or worried mm. or have insecurities around certain things and supporting them to be able to track back to that moment and go, ha ha, that's it. That's the voice inside me because that was the moment I remember, if not consciously, subconsciously. And that's the moment I never want to experience again. You can actually retrospectively go, ah, right. Okay. It was that moment. And so therefore, in that moment, I was able to get through it. I was able to develop some coping mechanisms. I am able to harness that experience. And so therefore, no longer does that have, that moment have a kind of freezing power on me. It now has a motivating power um, because it really has the potential both to 
yeah, it has the potential both to trigger stress and pressure, um, both positively and negatively. So it's, if, if it's always on the mind, if it's always a constant story of, if, using my example, I'm not good enough. Yeah. Like if I to- constantly told myself that, I-, I wouldn't get out of bed. But because I knew that I was able to find an avenue that I was good enough or that I could at least strive to be better, that is my narrative, which is um, certainly at the time is I'm not good enough yet. And so therefore there's this kind of anguish of maybe one day I might be good. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it was, it, it, it's, it, it's really an interesting being able to help somebody track back and then identify what's holding them back. And so therefore how can they reframe that moment in a way that's actually going to propel them forward. And I imagine actually for a lot of people, David, that's quite an emotional journey really. I know when I've done that exercise, we did a bit of an exercise, yeah. I suppose, as a as a collective. When you do yeah. those timelines, it's so interesting to sort of see how your memory pinpoints these certain things that have happened. And you could I suppose totally. as an external person reviewing, you can go, Whoa, hang on, whoa, 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 what what is that thing happening here? Well, that was you yeah. know, I just remember at this time at school it was it's one thing that happened. Um, and yeah. this turned it around in terms of my thinking or this is the point at school that someone said something to me and actually that is the one thing I took that the whole five years I was there or six years that you're in your secondary school that one thing that that one yeah. teacher said in that entire how many thousand days I was there or whatever has made me, yeah, that is the yeah. memory I've got which is just so weird it can, yeah. well, it can be weird i think for a lot of people to sort of resonate that and then yeah. take that to a, to a place where you can use it as a platform to deal with it to, yeah. to move on do you so school you came you were you know you you've got into talk is so you've left school is your full-time focus yeah. swimming when did you leave school just to give people a bit of a so picture I, I in did, terms of year so yeah so Left school um, at 17, 1999, and then went straight to university, still up in Aberdeen, um, and then uh, went to, uh, did business studies. Um, It was interesting, as soon as I left school, I suddenly, you know, and at university, suddenly found I had a whole bunch more time. Um, (laughs) I I very much saw lectures and uh, tutorials as optional. and somehow managed to get through the course. Um, but all of a sudden, my swimming kind of accelerated. And then I, after really? that, moved out to Australia for um, two, two and a half years. Uh, and from there, I, I was basically doing something like between thirty and 40,000 meters per week uh, in the UK to all of a sudden doing, uh, you know, anything up to 70, 80, 90,000 meters uh, a week in the fall, and that sudden shift again just accelerated uh, my um, my performance to a, a whole new level. Um, so how many hours is that? Give, basically, like, what, that's what when did I did. What does David Carey's uh, 18, 19 year old self in terms of like how many hours were you in the pool per day? Like, what did your day look like? Yeah, it was. Um, Again, it just felt so normal uh, because of the 
bizarre bubble that I was in, but um, it was uh, so two sessions a week, uh, two Monday, two Tuesday, one Wednesday, two Thursday, two Friday, one Saturday, each two and a half hours long. Um, and if we're doing 90,000, it's 9,000 meters per session. Um, and those yeah. sessions would range between uh, seven kilometers or a short one that was hard uh, to 10 that was longer and a bit slower. Do you um, know what I thought? Do, so yeah, 10 I just, you know, I, getting, it's so my, yes, it's just, it's absolutely out of control to sort of think that someone can spend that long in a pool. <laughs> Yeah, it really yeah. is. It, it was, it's really interesting thinking back. It was just, honestly, it was so normal. You, you get two weeks off a year. Every other week, you're in the pool. You're doing that. Um, it was not unusual to be, you know, getting the pool opened up for you. what was your diet like, Day. David, at that? Um, what was your diet? Like, how did that sort of, what was it? Was it, not was great. it were you knowledgeable? Yeah, not, really? Okay. No, no, not, not, not great at all. So, uh, Certainly around 2002, 2006, um, it was almost eat as much as you can um, because I was still in that mindset of how much can you do? And it's about, you know, getting as much kind of training in the body as possible in the hope that that would then translate into better performance. And so I'd be eating five meals a day um and those meals would be everything you can imagine pasta and yeah. everything um whereas towards the end of my career it was far more targeted um so although we always measured skin fold and things like that um you know my my body fat towards the end was getting close to four percent um so i was right. like so lean um and and really what we're tr constantly trying to do is is create as little friction in the water as possible. Um, and so therefore not having things jiggle around right. as in um, fat and things like that was, was super helpful. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it was it was pretty um, vague early on. Uh, I mean, everything was cooked from scratch, so it was relatively good, but it certainly wasn't measured and it wasn't um, no. targeted. Whereas nowadays, nowadays it's unbelievable what these guys are, yeah. how Marginal conscious, games, how switched on they are about their yeah. diet. Exactly. And, and it is just that iterative improvement. Um, yeah. It's almost exponential, actually. Uh, and, and, and it's not a surprise that the British swimming team now are probably the second best uh, after the US, second best swimming nation in the world in terms of results. And um, certainly after the last Olympics, they were in terms of the, the medal count, they, they were right up there, and and it is because of the professionalization of what it is that they're doing, and just relentless search for, as you say, marginal gains. Yeah, do, do what I find really interesting is like you know quite a lot of my not friends, but you know people you come across, you meet at dinners or networking events. It's like there's that common um, rhetoric of people that downgrade someone that's in sporting because because they feel they don't have time and like one of my pet hates is like when people say well it, you know that's his full-time job or that's her full-time job and I'm like even if that was your full-time job 
there is no way on this planet <laughs> with that mindset that you'd even be able to remotely do that, regardless if you've got the freaking time or not. Like, what do you normally do on holiday? If you switch off, don't do anything, whatever. <laughs> yeah. It's generally the, the, those, the mindset of yeah. like pushing people is like, oh, they're the CrossFit athlete, you know, because they they're able to train yeah. three four hours a day. Uh, well, no, I don't. I don't know. I don't know if I believe that. I don't think that's that's technically true. The mindset yeah. of just being able to sort of create that normality that you talk about, I find fascinating. Like it was normal to spend, uh, you know, basically the amount I run a week, seventy to hundred k a week. You're doing that in a pool, which is, you know, running to some extent, yeah, one foot in front of the other. But the pool, you don't yeah. move at all unless you're putting real effort in there. And it's just, <laughs> you're in a pool. It's just, I can't even get my yeah. head around that sort of normality yeah. of just your, you know, that that was what you were you were putting in. And that is the the level that you need to be, the time, the hour, the, the, well, yeah, the hours, um, spent in there, the prep, the distances needed in order to be at that level. It's incredible. Um, so, talk, yeah. Dave, so that spent two years in Australia pre 2009. Like, what was the, you know, you've got yourself um, in this sort of great training state. How did it sort of leave? Because I know that was a significant date for you in terms of um, competing. What happened pre two thousand and nine, and then after some of your the feelings that were yes gained on that point. Yeah. So to give to give you a quick kind of potted history of um, the kind of the, the main events. So two thousand four was Athens, and I was selected for the relay. And um, I swam the heats, and then we weren't. We were a young squad uh, in terms of the relay squad. We weren't expected to win any medals. And I remember um, the performance director standing up before the final session. So heats of the morning, recovery, finals at night, and uh, we had a team session. And he stood up front and said, "Well, look, you know, these are the sessions that we've got planned today. Here's the medal hopes. Really, kind of make sure that we're backing those guys. And then we've got the relay at the end. Yes, they've qualified um, third into the final, but we're not really, you know, this is all about experience for these guys. So we're actually going to swap the team around. David, you're not in the squad this evening. Um, we've got somebody else that's going to step really? in." And that kind of horrible, crushing moment. Again, it was a little bit like that kind of school experience of being what I felt publicly shamed. Of course, he didn't mean that and it wasn't about me. It was about the squad. But in yeah. that moment, it felt like this is a horrific moment. Um, and that squad went on to um, miss a medal by 0.8 of a second in the final that night. The time that I'd done just a couple of months before would have got us that medal. So I was like full of like... Just rage, actually. Um, and really? I, I, for the next two years, I absolutely just dedicated everything. I was like, I never want that feeling again. I want to absolutely dedicate myself. I want to make sure that that never happens again. And so two years later, at the Commonwealth Games 2006 in um, Melbourne, um, I, I went there and, and probably delivered one of my best competitions, came away with two gold medals and um, a bunch of others. 
that experience then really kind of set me up for um, the 2008 Olympics. And that right. for me was like, and for our relay squad, was all about winning a medal. And so we absolutely fixated on winning a medal at that 2008, to the point we actually set a time, which was just under the current world record. So we would be world record holders and we would want to win that medal. So literally every single session was right. like, how's our split times? Yes. On, on for a medal, not for a medal. Uh, really? The crazy thing was we got to the Olympic Games, slam, slam in the final, beat the time that we were aiming for, and yet we came fifth because four teams did a time we didn't even think existed. And, I, and that was so painful because basically I'd just, all of us, I'd attached like success or failure yeah. with medal or not. So even though we'd swam incredibly well, it felt like it was failure. Just, like total failure, total failure. And it was like the whole, like the whole feeling of like, what a waste of my life, you know, four years of my life. Like, you know, blah. is that what you felt? Um, Do you remember how you yes. felt at that point? Oh, really? totally. Like that was it. That was completely it. What a waste of my time. Um, waste of, waste of energy. Got nothing to show for it. Came the Mr. Medal by not by eight of a second again after oh, uh, coming so close the last time. The emotional um, so turmoil, David. It's just like you know it's so it's so <laughs> out of control. Point eight of a second. You just you know in the business yeah. world you lose it or you don't sort of yeah. thing in contract world but you don't lose things marginally like that it's so you you don't benchmark it in front of everyone yeah. like that it's, it must have been so tough yeah 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 seeing that yeah and this was this was this was a seven minute race so it wasn't like it was like one length of the pool <laughs> it was you know four by 200 freestyle relay that went like neck and neck the whole way um so that was really painful and i knew that in four years' time was London 2012. And there's no way I, I would have kept going with that same mindset. It was it was just too painful to kind of constantly really? feel like deficit and retribution. And it, it just wasn't a sustainable feeling. And I also knew that I was going to be 30 at the next Olympics and no 30-year-old had ever made an Olympic final in the event that I was going for in the 400 freestyle. So um, something had to change, and, and really the combination of Scott coming in, plus working with a, a sports psychologist, really kind of helped me reframe everything and just get kind of get per some perspective. And like it was so helpful, and just friends, like really helpfully. <laughs> One in particular, he was just like, "Have a word with yourself. Like you've just travelled the really? world for four years. I am having to slog away at a bank." I can't tell you how boring that is. <laughs> like, yeah. you're living the dream. You might have come forth, but like, nobody cares. Yeah. And like, and he said, nobody cares whether I'd got a medal or not. Like, of course, it would have been amazing. But actually, right. the fact is, you know, all these good things are happening. And I was able to flip the whole narrative around rather than I'm not good enough yet and, and just seeing so much evidence to back that up whether it's missing a medal at the Olympics by 0.4 or right. not, you know, turning up to a training session in the right mindset or or whatever it might have been. There was constant reams of evidence to tell me that I still wasn't good enough. And yet I was able to flip that 
Um, and uh, the, the motto, which I still have today, which is everything I've ever done has prepared me to this moment, completely changed my mindset on this. Um, and it, it meant that it felt like all what I'd done was basically a platform for me to then kind of springboard from today. And everything, every experience, highs and lows, all prepared me for what I was about to do. And it's really interesting just how much that has changed my perspective on things and way more growth mindset and way more willing to try new things. At the same time, I also did my master's in executive coaching. And that right. almost made those four years almost like a real life experiment. I was using myself to try out the theory that I was learning as an executive coach in trying to create a positive working environment, in trying to motivate myself, in trying to deal with my insecurities and, you know, unhelpful chatter I was giving myself. And uh, those four years, especially the last 18 months or so, were without question, like the best four years of my swimming career. Um, it also happened to coincide with a whole bunch of other things, uh, such as uh, having the best coach I have ever had. Up until then, I realized I'd only had trainers. So essentially, I, I class... Although they called themselves coaches, they're essentially there to tell me what to do, how to do yeah. it, how often, how long, at what speed. And, and I was just kind of executing based on what they're, they were telling me. So when I stood up to compete, it was like, oh, I'm alone now. Whereas I actually had a coach who I would describe as facilitated my performance rather than told me what to do. Um, and that, again, just all these little things allowed me uh, to, to perform and and without question, performed at my best at London 2012, um, swimming in the Olympic final, the 400 freestyle. It was just like the perfect bookending of my career. Uh, and it was a super special experience. Incredible, mate. Like, it's so nice to sort of hear, you know, yourself and, and the competed at that level, learning so much and taking so much insights from, all these things that you had around you and then taking that to learn teach others. Because um, quite often, um, I know I know a lot of, you know, a lot of sporting um, athletes, performance, uh, you know, specialists, you know, they have a theory on things, but it's, it's interesting to see like how you've played with them throughout your life and then reflecting on that, that was the catalyst that helped you get to that, that place where you were able to dedicate, take, a component of that to succeed um, and then dissect that further to then uh, obviously filter down to other people. Do you, like, what's the thing that motivates David, like, deep down? Like, is do it, it doesn't feel mm. like it's winning at all costs. It feels like there's a bit, because I, there's, there's a lot of, things i've listened and and, and you just put people in my life that it like that is really at all costs it's about coming first yeah um, and i know with my son like, yeah. like when he does certain things i'm like there is a learning from not coming first it's okay from not coming first. but in your yeah. world it really does feel like you get so you've learned so much actually in all those journeys Ooh. not winning and then you've elevated yeah. it to the next level somewhat 
Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Like what the, the, the whole concept that we use at Track Record is founded upon this idea of winning well. And um, mm. because, you know, initially as an organization, we started off, you know, it's all about winning. Like, how do we make sure that, you know, we beat people? And and very quickly, we steered away, away from the fact that actually even the, the, the very thought of having to beat other people distracts you from what it is that you're there to actually so, try and yeah. do. As soon as so you put other people spoken, into the yeah. equation, it then puts it about them and you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. you in comparison to them rather than yeah, being yeah. able to focus on, on what it is that you're trying to achieve. And so we now describe winning well at this idea that you're striving to deliver unbe- unbelievable levels of performance. So there's no drop in expectation that there is still that high striving for success but being able to balance that with a feeling of fulfillment so that actually turning up to work, turning up and doing whatever it is that you're doing is actually enhancing your life, not getting in the way of it. And all of our work is around supporting leaders to be able to create um, uh, team environments, organization environments, Mm -hmm. to ensure that individuals feel like they are using the organization as a vehicle to fulfill their own purpose, passion, and potential in order to get to where they want to. And as soon as you're able to flip that, rather than people feeling like they're being used by their organization or it's like, I can't wait to Friday or, you know, Saturday or whenever the weekend is. And it it, it then becomes an enhancing life experience working at an organization rather than something that, that feels quite oppressive. Um, and so for us, winning well is... is is quite actually a, a, a very different way of thinking because often we come into organizations and it is as if it's a compromise. It's a one or the other. It's a balance. Either we're going to be high-performing, striving for like greatness and slogging everybody's guts out, but kind of recognizing that well-being is, is not going to be that good. Or we're going to be like all about well-being and it's all soft, soft and fluffy and yeah, we're going to have to compromise and we're not going to have to work as hard. And actually... What we say is, no, it's not one or the other, it's both. And one aids the other, and the other aids the other. And so if you can create that environment, all of a sudden you've got got this kind of incredible self-sustaining place where there's high levels of expectation, where people feel incredibly supported to deliver that bar. And people are role modeling, as in people can see others, you know, they can see evidence of people mm-hmm. living like that and working like that and 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 holding each other to account and not being soft and having the difficult conversations. And and that's the type of environment when it worked well, we experienced in sport. Of course, in sport, it, it gets horribly out of kilter sometimes and it does all become about the medal and it doesn't become about the athlete's yeah. performance. And, and very quickly, that nosedives because the stress and pressure that's created in that system is unsustainable. And yeah. so, yeah, it, it's something that we go into a lot so that's a long way of saying, you know, in terms of the initial question, what motivates me, it is about striving. Like, so my values, for example, like number one is striving, like constantly seeking and, and it's tiring sometimes, but like striving for me is a really important thing, but that has to be yeah. matched with what I describe as har- harmony. And harmony is not just people around me, but actually me feeling quite good about what it is that I'm striving for. And the third thing's around energy that kind of idea that I think energy is so important, being able to um, 
put energy into something that I, like deliberately um, mm. to in order to make a difference. They're the things like when I get those three things uh, in play and I'm able to dial those up, then I'm probably at my best. I love that. I love that winning well mindset. I really like that. And I also yeah. really like that you have three values. I just really like that. I don't, you know, when we were doing our company values for Tillo, it was, you know, it took a lot of time and effort to do them. But actually, I don't know what my values are. I want to, do, I want to spend some time doing it. No. Do you? It's probably a good precursor, actually, to sort of, um, well, one, I'm going to make a note and I'm going to do my own values myself, actually, for me personally. This is a, uh, my yeah. own personal values. Um, I might copy some of yours because they sounded really nice. Like track record, like I remember when you were telling me about this, it was it was really interesting because um, just the evolution of companies and how they start, they get product market fit, they sort of get some really nice traction and early feedback, they grow, and then there's this beautiful in. in well, I know it's quite dramatic for lots of companies, but there's this beautiful embryonic stage of gro- of a company growing up to be, you know, baby through to toddler through to you know, teenager or young person to then adult. And yeah, if you translate that into business terms, it's like startup, scale up, you know, growth stage, IPO, and all that sort of stuff. It's yeah. a, I think this is this is a good sort of precursor talk a bit about track record and what you do and, and, and how you work with founders, executive teams to, to get the best out. Like what 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 is it that you uh, you do for these businesses? So we tend to start working well, it's predominantly with leadership teams. Um start there. There's there's kind of two offerings that we do. I'll come into the second one um further down. But it's with leadership teams and it's over a period of time. And that period tends to be one of a moment of inflection. So um, in the days when there used to be IPOs, we would be brought in, we would do individual and team coaching with that team to support them through that high stress and pressure moment to really kind of increase their sense of um, clarity in terms of what success looks like, the sense of cohesion within the team in terms of how they want to work uh, with each other and the team dynamics, and also the commitment in terms of what is each individual's contribution, what does that look like, and how do we ensure that, that we we support that team right the way through that uh, phase? Um, and so, so that's the kind of the, the 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 majority of our work, which is we we work a lot with private equity um, firms, both within the firms and with their portfolio companies. Um, through those moments of inflection. So significant change, it might be new people yeah. coming in, it might be new funding rounds, it might be um, all of a sudden the game has changed and so therefore th- that team has changed. And really what we see our role to be is when we're doing individual coaching with each of the leadership team, it's absolutely to be on their team. So it's completely confidential. It's about them being able to optimize what it is that they're yeah. there to do and really dial up their purpose, passion, and potential. And we believe if we're able to do that with each one of the exact teams, they will all then be more aware of 
what's going to pull them back, what's going to accelerate them, and how can they create an environment for themselves in order to deliver their best performance. That's kind of the individual coaching element. And then the yeah. team coaching, we are absolutely on the side of the business. And so it's not unusual when we work with a leadership team that actually a couple of people, up to 20% of that leadership team decide that's not for them. Because what we're there to do is really dial up what is success and what will it take in order to be able to um, deliver that success. So one of the big things that we find that, that teams just are not great at is having a scared sense of urgency in terms of what needs to get done when and what are the priorities. And so often yeah. there's completely different um, levels of urgency within that team. And in the same ways, like we're trying to create this highly tuned engine that they're all working together to create this environment for the wider organization to ultimately build confidence for all their stakeholders, whether that's investors or employees or customers, wherever it might be, they're trying to build confidence. And if a couple of elements of that engine of that leadership team are just running at a different speed, basically that engine starts to, to fall to pieces. Um, yeah. And so being able to make sure that everybody is in tune, working together at the same pace for the same goal um, really kind of uh, certainly gets me going. But it, it, it really supports that team through that, that kind of high stress and pressure phase. And then once they're through that phase, then we kind of leave them to it because ultimately they've developed the habits. They've got through that tricky phase and they're on to the kind of the next level. And it's kind of um, nice. very much easier to, to kind of cruise at that level. Um, so that's the majority of our work. Um, and it's such a privilege to be able to do it because we're really kind of supporting people having these life-changing moments because, you know, think about founders suddenly getting enormous checks they've perhaps never had before. Yeah. It, it's not just their role within that team is changing. It's their whole sense of identity and the circles in which they're moving and the quality of problems that they've suddenly inherited yeah. uh, because all of a sudden it's just a different place. And so certainly for teams and individuals, one of the hardest things that we experience people's um, people to have is that change of identity. I was this, we're now this. And how can you yeah. shed what was once our narrative to then become something entirely different? Fascinating. And did you, was that, did you feel as you were coming to like closing the chapter, you, you sort of sort of closing the book on 2012 London Olympics, did you, did you feel this was a natural progression that you wanted to go into coaching? Because, you know, there's, lots of sports and people go into public speaking, they go into motivational talk. Did you feel this yeah. was an area that you would really excel in and you would do, you know, you find your life's work almost? Yeah, I, I kind of did. And and the reason for that is because I think it was 2000 and Six. maybe five, I started, um, so rather than doing the sponsorship group, a lot of athletes try and do and they basically kind of wear a label on their chest and turn up for days and do meet and greets and all that kind of stuff. Actually, I, I much prefer going into organizations and just telling stories yeah. about my career. And as much as people love, you know, seeing the medal and all that kind of stuff, I quickly realized it wasn't that that was interesting to people. Um, it was yeah. very much the story 
yeah. specifically the setbacks and the lessons that um, I kind of gleaned from those experiences. And so I would do things. So, you know, as I said, I had two weeks off a year. So I basically know that almost immediately after a major competition, I would have to tell a story. And that's so that forced me to immediately reflect on what's just happened. So I knew right. I was speaking. I didn't know the result yet. And so the, the, basically the speech couldn't be about the result. It had to be about the journey. And that forced me to really reflect on what are the stages. It actually gave me a huge amount of confidence leading into the competition, having prepared what I was going to talk about. Because, you know, I'd learned all these lessons. And very quickly, I realized not just telling those stories, but actually asking questions and asking them about their experiences and how they might be able to apply either similar thinking or uh, different things. And I very quickly learned that that was, in fact, coaching rather than motivational speaking. And um, that's, I just absolutely loved it. As soon as, you know, just yeah. those moments of seeing people go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. right. You figured out that 35% of what you were doing wasn't contributing yeah. towards your Olympic final. I'm sure there's probably something similar for me. So therefore, what would that be? And being able to help people through that process was just like it's addictive. I mean, I just absolutely love it. It's kind of still what I do today. So I feel like I've done that for quite a long while now that, um, yeah, just facilitating the performance of others and supporting others to really challenge themselves. Because ultimately, we're not consultants. We We don't pretend to know what it is that the organizations are that we work for. We don't know how to invest capital. Um, having worked with private equity companies for as many years as we have, my investing has not improved any, any at all. Um, whereas um, being able to have that kind of professional distance in terms of, yes, you might be doing something very compli- uh, complicated and high finance, but actually, ultimately, it still comes down to how can you get the best out of the humans that you have, and how can you mm-hmm. align their um, ambition, how can you dial up their um, motivation, and how can you ensure that each person is contributing in a way that's ultimately going to get that that collective goal. And that's it. So fun. So so you fun. I find it really interesting just how. You know, you can come into some of these talks and and listen to certain people, but like you can really tell with you really love and believe, so passionate about like helping others. And you know, we anyone out there just sort of looking for help, I suppose from a from a professional perspective, you know, do check out uh, track record. David's being quite helpful. I'm not going to speak about some of the clients that David's working with. Obviously, there's a confidentiality piece there, but David works with some absolutely incredible companies, companies that I mean, no doubt that many of us use or interact with today. Um, so it's even more personal um, from my perspective. But I think just sort of looking at sport and business, like as we come to the end of this really insightful chat, like what things really translated like because i look back at my career especially my early career in the in the military and 
like I've got some really interesting things that translated and lots of people say, oh, you know, that must have translated really well from like army to this. And there's loads of stuff that did and there's loads of stuff that freaking did it. In the pool that long, training, routine, all these things. What is there one or two or three things that you can sort of pull from that sporting world that you pull into the professional world, business world, and all these high growth businesses, businesses that are disrupting industries, businesses that are doing simplifying yeah. stuff for the consumer, like that you that you've found? Yeah, I, I think there's a few things, and um. And it's interesting. We don't often tell stories from sport within the the work that we do. Um, what we have done is just created a kind of framework and a, a philosophy almost, and and it is kind of really? anchored around that winning well concept. But I, I think the 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 beauty of sport is its simplicity. So certainly in Olympic sport, every four years you have got this immovable deadline that you have yeah. to deliver your very best performance and there's no shifting it. like if you're ill the day before tough but they're not going to shift yeah. it they're not going to push the deadline out that project is not going to get an extension so that is staying and and it's also pretty um well it's incredibly measurable so you know there's no hiding space in terms of well i did well but you know yes that yeah. metric might not have been great but actually look at all these metrics irrelevant like that is the result and so i think often what we do we come into businesses is apply that same simplicity and often we hear yeah but it's not that simple and business is a little bit more vague well it's only vague if you make it vague you can actually it's within your control it's within your power to make it much clearer and actually the clearer you make it the more simple you make it the more likely you are to be able to channel enough energy towards the thing that you're trying to achieve that's one definite thing certainly early on in in track record that we we did a lot about and i think there's two others one is around how do you create an environment to allow individuals to deliver their best performance and that's kind of um three things that we see as as being critical again taken from sport absolutely applied and refined within the business world which is you have to have high and clear levels of expectation so if people don't know what the bar is or if it's not clear, or if it's low, if there's low levels of expectation, then the chances are people are not going to deliver your best performance. So it has to be a high level of expectation and super clear. The second has to be a perceived level of support that matches that level of expectation. It almost doesn't matter how high the bar is. As long as people feel supported to that level, you're yeah. likely to be able to get um, uh, a good high-performing environment. But the third thing, and it's like three legs of a stool, they all have to be high level. And the third thing is around role modeling. So they have to see it to believe it. There has to be disciplines, things in place, routines in place that allow and enable and ensure that the, those two first things are, are, are there. So what does that look like? That looks like very clear sense of this is what I have to achieve and it's on me. I feel like I've got everything I need in order to deliver that. The things that are important. So I'm not talking about table tennis tables and bean bags here. I am talking about the training, the tools, the stuff I need in order to deliver that expectation. And I see my teammates and colleagues 
delivering and having conversations and holding each other to account. So if you've got that kind of team environment, which again, sometimes we experience in sport, often we didn't, that's yeah. what we're talking about. And that directly translates. And I think the third thing that we've learned a huge amount from is the use of data to calibrate and measure performance and quantify performance. And one of the, the biggest kind of step forwards that you, we've used and introduced to the business world is around um, measuring stress and pressure. So the biometric um, measurements that individuals are going through. So the literally minute by minute stress responses that they have to any given situation. And we use that within the individual and team coaching uh, environment to basically fast track yeah. tro- their coaching. So if we've got somebody's data that they own, that they kind of share with us, that, that basically says, you know, at 9.42, I had a huge stress spike. Okay. Um, we're able to then go, right, what happened at 9.42? And it's like, oh, yeah, my boss walked in the door. And we can then go, right, what's the issue there? What's the story you're telling yourself? And it completely gets rid of the BS, allows us to then have proper targeted, meaningful coaching conversations around it's not the coach walking in the door that's the problem. It's the story that you're telling yourself that creates that stress response. And so we're able to then support that individual to then basically figure out what's going on there. How can we change that? And how can we ensure that that's not the thing that stops you from delivering your best performance? Um, so we're used, able to use data pretty effectively, whether it's in the team environment or at the individual level. Um, so they're the, probably the three main things yeah. that we've translated across. Incredible, really interesting sort of set of rules and um, items that you've pulled across. I mean, it's stuff that I just you just don't really think about at all. Especially that data bit, like that is really interesting. Mm. Like how you know people are able to sort of look and think about that working week and actually RFPs, leadership meetings one-to-ones, all these things with, and with certain people that can trigger these responses and use that as a basis to kind of re-level it, if you will. Yeah. It's a bit like you're delivering the zone totally. thing for business in some respect, like with your yeah. sugar levels. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's really interesting. We've actually completely changed um, organizations' meeting structures, both in terms of like the frequency the length mm-hmm. and also the the content of those meeting structures based upon the data that we're capturing um, from individual biometric, you know, the blood chemistry that's happening mm-hmm. within somebody's body and the, the responses of that. And we're able to say, look, this Monday meeting is absolutely not producing any oh. results because nobody's um, you, you've got nobody's attention. Uh, the people are stressed. Um, they're doing other things. They're distracted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So therefore, going back to what is it that you're trying to achieve? And so therefore, what is it that you have to talk about? And what's the issues that need to be addressed today in order to increase the probability that you're going to achieve that result? It totally flips the meeting. Because again, having that same experience that I had, how does this moment today, how does this choice, how does this expenditure of calories impact and get me mm-hmm. closer to the thing that we're trying to achieve. And asking that simple basic question um, really helps people rather than kind of 
we always do the Monday meeting, so we'll always do the Monday meeting, and they always talk first, and we always talk second, mm-hmm. and it always runs out of time, and it runs over, and this, that, and the other. It's shifting the dynamic to based on what is it that you're trying to achieve, and how can you contribute towards that today in this moment, and what's the best allocation of that energy? Yeah, I really like that. Um, one thing I'm going to take away from you know this discussion is that winning well sort of approach to things and actually personal values because I don't think very many people have their own values. I think they have things that they believe in, but when you boil it down, like what are you doing? Like what 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 is really yeah. important uh, to you as a person? Is there any frameworks that you have used mm-hmm. or you know about that help that can help you build out your own personal values? How did you even come up with them? Yeah, so um, we do it as, as a, a key part of um, really around confidence. Um, and you know, one, once you have values, they, they increase decision making like so much because you basically got this kind of natural filter and does it yeah. basically. You know, you put it through your your values as a filter, then it kind of spits out a pretty decent uh, answer for you often. And so in terms of how we do it, basically we see values as they have to be proactive, not passive. So basically we, we kind of um, turn it into active language. So, you know, using my example, like I am um, striving, I am harmonious, I am um, uh, kind of positive energy. It's, it's being able to ensure that it is something that I do, not something that um, something that I do and something I am rather than yeah. something that just kind of sits kind of um, objectively and in, yeah, it makes on sense. Workbook. The way that the, the way that we get people to do it is basically a lot of people probably know what they are. So we actually just get them to write down what are the most important things when you think about how you apply um, or or what you might want to be thought of or. How, how do you want to kind of basically pass through life? What are the most important things to you? And we're looking for one words there. And you basically write a, write a whole long list. As many things as, as come to mind. The other question that people are struggling is like, what really pisses you off? Like what really gets in your goat? So uh, for example, if um, people are, you know, if you get really frustrated when people are arrogant, then... Mm-hmm. The chances are you probably value humility. Yeah. So therefore, that then becomes a value. So you basically kind of do all that. We then get them to stack rank them. So identify like what's the most important down to the least important. You get them to basically scrub off as many as you can. And then you get them to put definitions next to each one. Because ultimately, what we live by is the definition of the value, not the value itself. Um, and then it's about activating them. So, you know, asking people at the beginning of the week, it's a wonderful planning tool. So, you know, again, use mine. If I'm going to be truly striving, harmonious and, and positive energy, what decisions and choices will I make? Will I, what will I turn up to? Like, what will I achieve yeah. through the things that I've got uh, this week? And what would be a great result? And then I can then use that to reflect at the end of, of the week as well. So, as much as possible, ingraining it in the way of operating, basically how you turn up, how you think, how you basically review how well you've done, um, it's really important. 
one health warning that's really worth mentioning is that the stronger those values become in you, the more aware you become, the more you expect other people to live those values. So I can imagine. If people are not, again, in my, if my, in my world, if people are not striving, if people are not like really dedicated to being better, um, I, I've got a pretty strong turn-off button on that one. So just like, like that's the consequence of it. Don't expect others to also apply that same way of being because somebody else's might be fundamentally different or might be the same, but it like they have a different definition. So yeah. expecting others to apply that same thinking is um, is massively unfair and unrealistic. Yeah, that's really insightful. I'm going to say it now, I think people listening mm-hmm. to this for the first time, they're going to be, they basically just had thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds worth of free coaching here. That's why I sort of feel you've, uh, <laughs> you've been very kind, uh, really kind. I, I learned so much talking to yourself. It's, it's a pleasure to sort of um, say that you're a friend and someone I'm acquainted to. So yeah, thank you, David. I really appreciated it. So I'm going to pull my wild card out here and oh. be the coach and, and the host for a second and ask you, <laughs> what was it that that teacher said to you that you've kind of remembered from school and how does that impact how you lead today? Good question. So, I don't think this, this teacher definitely didn't um, say anything that was out of line, I suppose, in, in any respect. But I remember being in, I was on all the bottom sets at school. Um, so there was a lot of TA support. I say a lot. There was a couple of people in there sort of supporting people within the classroom and I think it might have been um, an English class and we had we had a substitute teacher in and then there was a TA teacher assistant in there um, sort of helping me while I work and this was quite late on actually when I was talking to you specifically about your um, experience that you had with your school and this one teacher sort of picking on you to some extent getting you to stand up and talk and that sort of thing it reminded me of when i was probably about 15 or 14 um it was it probably was 15 actually because i was coming to the end of schooling and and this this lady was talking to me about uh what i was going to do when i when i was going to leave school because that was quite a topical thing there because everyone started to think about are they going to go to college are they going to are they going to go straight into work are they working for their parents um or whatever they're interested in and i remember i said i said to her that um you know really i because i hadn't done that well in my coursework um i was sort of quite lazy when it came to actually trying for the exams that were coming up the gccs so she asked me you know what are you going to do and i said well i've i've already been accepted into the army I've managed to do my um, my exam or my barb test, they call it, to get in. So, really, I you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bother with any of this stuff. I'm not in a rude way, but I just said that you know this this doesn't help me. I've already got in. Yeah, yeah. And she said, "Well, 
yes, to some extent, Alex, but do you not want to do it for yourself? And I sort of looked at her and I, I must have made a face like, no. And actually looking back, I feel so pissed off that I didn't. And like, I know what she means yeah, now. Yeah. I knew what she meant when I joined the army, actually, because it isn't, it wasn't cool for me not to try. Like, why not try for yourself? And everything around the army was all around trying for yourself. It's all, it's cool to be the fastest. It's cool to be the best shot. It's cool to be the one that gets everything right. Um, it's celebrated to be the best. Yeah. Um, and it, but at school, it was totally the opposite. I look at my son's school, my daughter's school, like, yeah. it's cool to be good. Whereas at my school, at that, it, it, it really wasn't. Yeah. In fact, it was better off to be hidden at the back and not doing well at all and just be quiet and not be seen. So I think for me, it was around yeah. self-worth yeah. Um, and I didn't really have a lot of it back then. And now, mm. um, you know, I've, I've learned from that lesson and, and, and actually try everything I do. doesn't matter what it is. So, yeah, that's what I've sort of learned. So, yeah. interesting. Do you know what? It's actually interesting. When you, when you asked me that, sure. I didn't really know what I was going to say. And that's just kind of rolled into something there, a lot bigger than I thought over five minutes. <laughs> yeah, thank you, David. May I really appreciate it. <laughs> uh, well, good you, man. you might have just found your first value as well. Yes. Yeah, self-worth. No, no. Appreciate that. Thank you, mate. Is there anything else you wanted to sort of finish off with or mention or anything like that? I I think the the big, you know, in terms of what I've reflected, either preparing for or actually hearing myself out loud today, I think it's it's really helped me remember, like, at at my core, what's important to me and how how can we as track records... um, really kind of double down on the things that we truly care about so actually it's really helped me refine and and just kind of re-remember yeah. all the things that are important and special about us um and so i think that's probably what i'm going to be taking away um just that kind of real like sense of mission and purpose that um nice. i definitely have but being an extrovert unless i say it out loud it's it probably doesn't get processed by me. So this has been super helpful. So thank you very much for the, the opportunity. No, thanks, David. Until next time. No, I really uh, look forward to catching up in person again. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. It means a lot. Um, I know I've been a lot to a lot of the people that are listening as well. So thank you, mate. There it is. You've heard David talk about his time as a competitive swimmer. You've heard all the lessons he has learned along the way and how he's applied them to track record coaching but also as a person and as a human. As I said, I think I speak for all listeners out there when I talk about the sort of coaching methods and some of the methodologies that he puts into his own life and into his own routines that you've just received thousands of pounds of free coaching. Really appreciate David's time and sharing his knowledge with everyone on on the podcast uh, today. Thank you for listening and I look forward to catching up on the next one.